Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. We talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we're going to talk about the need for Christians to think morally and ethically about the events that are taking place in our world and the need to reject the myth that lockdowns, church closures, and politics and things like that are morally neutral. So to get us started today, Aaron, could you just explain to us, are all decisions ethical or moral in nature, or are there actually some decisions that are just morally neutral? Well, I think this is a really important conversation for us to have because we are being um, confronted with all sorts of decisions that are being made for us by officials and medical doctors that impact our ministry, our family lives, our ability to earn a livelihood, our churches, uh, our ability to get the gospel out, et cetera. And a lot of Christians, I think, have this notion that um, church life is sort of in one category. So we get all moral and we get all concerned about spiritual things on Sunday or at youth group or Wednesday night prayer meeting. But the rest of life is kind of morally neutral. So we have this, uh, I think we have this uh, unnecessary and um, inequitable trust in government, in physicians, et cetera. So this is why I wanted to have this conversation uh, today. And so I, I hope that it does profit uh, the listeners. I would just say to get us going that if many of the circumstances that we find ourselves in right now are moral in nature, then we cannot just go to the physicians or the medical establishment for input and advice on how to respond. And I'd like to argue that we aren't dealing with morally neutral decisions. We're dealing with morally charged decisions. We're dealing with ethical decisions. When we talk about church closers locking down people's businesses or keeping people home, these are actually moral in nature with a medical dimension to them as well. Now, when we think about morals and ethics, we understand that there's sort of a scale of moral intensity. So, for example, if I were to ask myself the question, hmm, should I wear shoes today as opposed to, oh, should I murder that person today? Everyone would understand that the, the issue of murder is an ethical or moral issue. With regard to wearing shoes, well, it, it might be a moral issue. It might have an, an ethical undertone to it or it might not. For example, if by not wearing shoes, I expose my pals to my stinky feet, that might affect my ability to have a meaningful relationship with them. Or if by not wearing shoes, I damage my feet uh, by you know walking across shards of glass or something like that, then I have a stewardship issue in front of me. I'm not properly taking care of my body. I'm deliberately exposing my body to harm. And that, and that could be argued that you know, that's a moral issue. Or it might be that uh, in order to fulfill a particular moral duty, it's expected that I would wear shoes. And if I don't wear shoes, let's say I'm the prime minister of Canada and I'm speaking to the country on stage and I'm not wearing shoes, it it might reduce the willingness of uh, the citizens to listen to me because I would lose respect. So this is an example of something that we wouldn't think of normally as a moral issue. And most of the time it's really not, but it could become a moral issue. And so obviously when we make decisions, 
uh, in life, there's a certain amount of moral intensity attached to them. Some have very little morality about them, maybe none. Others have a significant amount of morality uh, attached to them. But I would just say that in general, when we are moving beyond sort of the, the, the very mundane, non-relational decisions that we might make daily, like should I have mashed potatoes for supper tonight or should I have squash? When we move beyond those sort of mundane, probably morally neutral decisions, unless by eating the squash we offend the chef who wants us to eat the potatoes. When we move beyond those things, I would like to suggest that uh, in relationships, which is really what we're talking about, relationships of church to government, church to state, uh, Christians to Christians, husbands to wives, employers to employees, in relationships, you'd be hard-pressed to find a morally neutral decision. Okay, so can you dig into that a little bit? In terms of relational choices, when you say that, what do you mean? What do you mean when you say that relational choices really, that it's very, you'd be hard pressed to say they're not morally neutral? If we think about it, every time we are engaged in a relationship with someone else, there's a moral exchange taking place. So when I pull into a parking lot and I look to my right and I see, oh, there's one parking spot, I want to take it. But by taking it, I'm going to cut off that other person from getting that spot, make them wait, maybe make them frustrated, make them angry. I am in a moral dilemma. I need to make a decision. I need to weigh out the pros and the cons of that decision. Should I open the door for her? Is that something that's going to honor her and respect her? There's a moral dimension to that. Should I pay my full taxes to the government? Uh, Should I stay home and not attend the funeral? Or should I be at the funeral in order to provide uh, a measure of comfort to the bereaved? Should I... And then we could amp it up, right? So in relationships, we could have scenarios where, you know, should I jump in front of the bullet that someone is is about to take? So in life, whenever we're interacting with others, there's a moral dimension to those decisions that we make because we are consciously or subconsciously taking the other person into consideration or not taking them into consideration when we should. We're looking out for our own needs or maybe paying too much attention to our own needs, we're potentially creating uh, a situation where we can bless another person or curse another person. So in, in relationships, it's pretty much always some sort of a moral exchange. And I remember growing up, uh, many times people would say things like, you know, all sin is damnable. So, you know, sin is sin is sin. We shouldn't be judgmental. All sins kind of the same. And you start studying scripture and it's true that all sin is damnable and all sin is an offense to God. But when you actually study scripture, you realize, no, all sin isn't equal. There are some sins that are worse than others. There are some sins that require a greater expression of our own depravity. There are some some sins that are more morally perverse. So, for example, if you go back to the Levitical law and just look at one chapter just as an example. So you look at Leviticus uh, chapter 20. So in Leviticus chapter 20, you have the sin and the punishment, the sin and the punishment. And the punishment is weighed or is commensurate to the sin in some way, shape, or form. 
So, for example, if you sacrifice your child to Moloch, a foreign god, what's the penalty attached to that under the Levitical Code? Death. The sin that you've committed is commensurate to the punishment that you'll receive. Then it talks about taking and marrying your brother's wife. What happens if you take and marry your brother's wife? You are cursed with being infertile. You're childless. So it's not death. It's not as significant of a punishment, but it's commensurate to the nature of the sin that you've committed. Um, so the, these would be examples in scripture of where uh, certain sins are more relationally destructive. Obviously, the taking of another person's life is the ultimate relational destroyer. It's an affront to the Imago Dei, the fact that this person is made in the image and likeness of God. And it's taking authority over another person's life that you don't have. So there's there's different degrees of moral culpability in relationships. So one of the things that um, is important for us to understand is whenever we're in relationship with other people, we are in some sort of a moral or ethical exchange. There's that dimension to the relationship. The problem is that many Christians today tend to think of a lot of the stuff that's going on in the world as morally neutral, and I don't think it is. So, for example, we talk about multiculturalism. Multiculturalism is morally neutral. It's morally neutral. It's morally neutral. Of course, we understand that sometimes people mix up the word multicultural with multi-ethnic. So we, we would agree as Christians that regardless of the color of your skin, you know, your ethnic heritage, that we're all equal under God, we're all made in the image and likeness of God, and we should value each other as such. But multiculturalism, if you think about the word culture, that's about basically the, um, we could say, the, the human constructs that societies hold dear. So from things that are less moral, but not necessarily without any moral import, like what food we generally eat, to what our understanding is of marriage, to what our understanding is of raising children, to where we go for our authority. Do we go to uh, the Bible? Do we go to the Quran? Do we go to the government? Like who do we who do we go to? Multiculturalism is really about championing human constructs. And most of those constructs have a moral dimension to them. So it would be foolish for us to just say, oh, we're multicultural. Whatever you, whatever part of, whatever is part of your culture is part of your culture, no problem. Look around the world. Cultures that are less theistic, are less biblically derived, are less free, are uh, more tyrannical or are guilty of heinous sins against other people. So, for example, while this might offend non-Christian listeners, the fact of the matter is that the freest, most morally upright countries in human history had a Christian foundation to them. Sorry, that's not true of Hindu countries. 
That's not true of Islamic countries. That's not true of atheistic, communistic countries. That's not true of countries that are radically moving in the direction of secularism as their God. So one, one can't, we have to be discriminate. That word is sometimes used negatively, but we have to discriminate when it comes to issues of culture between right and wrong. Um, we all hear the word tolerance a lot. We need to be tolerant, 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 tolerant. Well, tolerance can be a sin. We think of it as the middle road, you know, that's neutral territory, just tolerate everybody's opinions and everybody's beliefs. That's what Jesus would do. <laughs> really? What if God's glory is at stake? What if we're told not to tolerate sin? What if we have to be intolerant toward the taking of human life or abortion or infanticide or um, the abuse of children? I mean, th these things are, we can't tolerate these things because they're not morally neutral matters. Public education, I, I think growing up, because I was born in the early 70s, we would think of public education as sort of middle ground, right? You had Christian education over here, which was clearly moral. And then public school was just sort of more morally neutral, sort of, but not really. Because public education is, and it's, it's so clear now, it's just undeniable, is clearly being driven less by pedagogy, less by the delivery of content, you know, good math, good history, good geography, and so forth, the um, study of the natural world. And it's more driven by the promotion of ideologies. So we have the radical sex education agenda in public schools. Uh, we have increasing movements towards, um, you know, the propaganda efforts to like basically de-gender our children uh, radical teaching uh, on um, evolutionary theories, uh, no tolerance for any recognition of God. Man, you can go. You can go through a uh, a whole public school, high school education, elementary education, and never even take a course on on religion, like any sort of a course on religion, even though it's part and parcel of pretty much every human culture. So, just a a, a dismissal. So, these are just examples that um, uh, help us to understand. We can't just blindly trust the claim that outside the church, decisions are morally neutral, non-religious, and therefore we should be accepting of them. There is no hard, sacred, secular divide. There's a gradation of more obviously moral and less obviously moral decisions. So as we can process that, the, the grad gradation of moral decisions – uh, how do we know where a person stands morally when making decisions? Well, I think we need to we need to exercise some discernment. So when we're in relationship with people, we obviously ask questions. We look them in the eye. We we have conversations about the issues of life. You know, we talk we talk about God. We talk about God in education. God in politics. Uh, we talk about God in culture as a whole. Uh, we talk about our marriages and children and dreams and goals and values and all of that. Uh, what's helpful is for us to be looking for clues as to how this person thinks in, in moral categories. And you could sort of think of it this way. There, there's sort of like a, a scale of um, moral sensitivity. So we would have... I suppose on um, 
one end of the scale, we would have what I would call immoralists, immoralists. And that would be a person that denies the existence uh, or doesn't deny the existence, but but understands there are morals, but just doesn't care. They, they do not choose to follow that which they know to be right. So it's like, yeah, I, I know that stealing's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. I know that adultery is wrong, but who cares? I like doing that. This is an immoralist. An amoralist would be someone, and this is increasingly the case. It used to be, you know, you're either a moralist or immoralist, but now we have amoralists. Ah, meaning no. They, they deny the validity of moral categories. There's no such thing as right and wrong. It just doesn't exist. Now, it's interesting that, uh, and you've heard this said probably many times before, that when people make those definitive claims, they're actually sort of making a moral judgment, saying there, there is no right and wrong. There is no good and evil. And they're being very sort of definitive about that. So there's some implicit contradiction in that. Then we have the moral relativist, which is the person that says, well, it's it's right or wrong depending on the circumstances, the culture, the worldview, the law. It's like if the law uh, – here, here's one, one thing that's interesting. We have a lot of Christians today that say you have to obey the law no matter what because it's the law. Well, where are they getting that from? They're getting it from previous generations of Christians that taught that. But the difference is, is that previous generations were in cultures, Christian cultures, where the law was a reflection of God's law. So that's why we past generations would say you obey the law because the law flowed from or was based on God's divine law. But when God's divine law is set aside and cultures start to create laws that have, are, are in no way, shape, or form reflective of Scripture or actually are in contradiction to Scripture, then we have a divine obligation not to obey those laws. So that's really important for people to understand. The fourth category would be the moral absolutist, right? The person that says, hey, there's objective right and there's wrong, and I hope I'm right about them. I hope I've understood them properly. But even if I get some things wrong— even if I'm wrong about my views on something, I still believe there is right and wrong, and I'm in hot pursuit of that which is right. So everybody makes decisions. And when you make decisions in relationships, you make them out of the mindset, well, I'm a moral absolutist, or I'm a moral relativist, or I'm a moral you know, amoralist, or I'm an immoralist. And those affect the, the, the way that you make decisions. Now, this is really important for us to understand. People that are moral absolutists like myself. And by the way, if, if I wanted to be like super technical, I would actually call myself a graded moral absolutist, meaning that if I was ever in a situation where I only had two choices and both of them were not great, I would weigh and grade the decision and I would, I would choose sort of the lesser evil, right? So it would be... Um, you know, the classic example in ethical studies is, you know, the Nazi comes knocking at your door and says, are there Jews in your house and you're hiding Jews upstairs? What do you do? You don't tell them the truth. Now, a strict moral absolutist would say, oh, that's, I can't believe you just said that. You're a pastor. The Bible says always tell the truth. Just trust in God. Well, Rahab didn't tell her questioners the truth because she understood that the truth she would tell them would be actually be used to create 
grave evil, to, to bring grave evil upon the, the righteous spies. So, I mean, in the odd time in life, you might be confronted with a graded absolute where you have two bad choices. Do I, quote unquote, tell the truth and turn the Jews over to execution, turn the spies over to be put to death? Or do I withhold truth? Do I willfully deceive a wicked person in order to save life? Okay, but that's a little sidebar. I'm a moral absolutist, bottom line. And we make decisions as moral absolutists. Now, that doesn't mean we always make the best decisions because we could misinterpret. We also struggle with our fleshly appetites. But generally speaking, good people make better decisions because they're governed by truth. Moral people, moral absolutists, make better decisions because they're governed by truth. Non-believers at times can make good decisions. For example, you know, in Ezra 1.1, the Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus to let his people go from the uh, captivity, and it happened. Now, we could say behind the scenes God is working, of course, but that's a good decision that he made. Um, so good people, Christian people, when they have a moral basis, make hopefully good decisions. And people that don't know God can also make good decisions because maybe they have more information at their disposal, right? Good, beneficial, we could say moral decisions, decisions that benefit relationships. We know that to be true. One example I've given is let's suppose, let's suppose Chris, you needed heart surgery. And you and I have known each other for what, like 10, 12, yeah. some odd years. You need heart surgery. You're like, well, I, I trust Aaron. He's been my lead pastor for a long time and my professor at school and all that. And you need heart surgery. I'm like, Chris, I'll, I'll do it. Never done it before, but I'll do it, man. You trust me, right? No, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a person B was someone you've never met before. They're an atheist. Maybe they're a, a Wiccan, a pagan, whatever. Uh, a Muslim, a Hindu, but they are a skilled heart surgeon. I'm pretty sure you're going to pick them over me to do the job that needs to be done. But um, while a person can have those skill sets that make them better at accomplishing a um, you know valuable uh, service to you, the, what about what about the um, so maybe we could think about how, how do morals affect the way they do surgery or get this, the way they care for you afterwards. So what would their attitude be toward you if things go wrong and they just view you as a biological being that's a product of, you know, random evolutionary processes as opposed to a person that would see you as made in the image and likeness of God and valuable and whatnot. Uh, we see this in medicine today, whereby people that are very skilled at surgery cut babies out of the womb. I, I wouldn't even know how to do that. I would not only would I not want to do it, not only would I find that morally repugnant. I just I wouldn't even know how to do it. They have quote unquote the skill to do surgery, but it's used for evil because their worldview is not connected to their skill sets. What about the aftercare? What about going the extra mile for you if you if you needed some sort of help after the fact? So while their skill sets might be greater and they might benefit you, there still are moral uh, moral implications or moral decisions that need to be made in that process. 
And um, that may or may not be the greatest example, but the point where I wanted to take that is that right now there's this claim that we're in a medical crisis. Now, don't focus so much on the word crisis when I say that. Focus on the word medical. So don't focus so much on, well, is it a crisis? Isn't it a crisis? How many people are dying? How many aren't? What's the stats? Don't focus so much on that word, but focus on the first part of that. People say we're in a medical crisis. Are we? I would say we're in a medical, economic, spiritual, uh, financial, relational crisis. There's a whole bunch of things taking place that are part of this crisis. It's not just a medical crisis, small or large. It is. It, it, it impacts all sorts of other things, as do most medical decisions. So, for example, by locking down the world, you make a decision to destroy an economy. That's a decision that impacts people's lives for generations to come. We, we use moral language in the process. We say, oh, the medical heroes, the heroes, the doctors, the nurses. I, I, just had a, I was just talking to a brother this week who's um, in medicine, and he says it makes him sick at the hospitals when they keep calling everyone heroes. Because while many of them are putting in long hours when there's outbreaks and whatnot, it's very demeaning to people who have been told to close their businesses, lose their livelihoods for the sake of people they've never met. They're mm -hmm. heroes too, are they not? Mm -hmm. um, we also have, if you look at what's going on in the world, there's a socio-cultural issue. So we have, we're getting advice and we're giving airtime to non-medical persons. Why is everyone quoting from Bill Gates? Why is Bill, why are the celebrities being used to promote the stay-at-home narratives? You ever thought about that? Why are they being used? That, that's not purely a medical decision when you're calling people with no medical advice, no medical background at all to weigh into the social narrative. There's an ethical dimension there. There's, a, there's an ethical dimension in the use of property rights. So if you have a second property up north, you're not allowed to go to it, but you paid for it. You continue to pay for it. You own it. It's yours, but someone's telling you you, you can't go there. There's a, that's not just a medical decision. That, that has a moral basis to it. Um, even our own premier, sometimes he'll say, God bless, you know, in his announcements. That's a recognition of a transcendent being. That's, that's going beyond a medical claim or a medical pronouncement. That There's a spiritual dimension to that. Politicians squabbling about who controls taxation, the role of the federal or provincial opposition. National considerations like, should we close borders to people and not allow refugees in or immigrants in? Should we just kind of close that all down? Because there's a medical crisis. People early on last year, you know, the whole toilet paper incident, collecting supplies they didn't need. There's, that's not a medical decision. That's a selfishness decision. So uh, there's so many things going on. The role of the global community and nationhood. These are These are all... Uh, morally charged decisions. And since the majority of Canadian decision makers presumably fall, in, fall into either the immoralist category or the moral relativist category, those of us that are moral absolutists obviously are going to want to monitor their 
decisions um, pretty closely. So there's some things that we could talk about, maybe specifically uh, things like the biblical command to meet as a church. That's a moral, uh, a moral command, and the lockdowns force our hand in that way. So the lockdowns are a moral, um, a moral decision. Can you speak to that a little bit in that regard? Well, early on in the first lockdown last year, we we know the Bible commands us to meet, forsake not the gathering together of believers, as some are in the habit of doing. It's amazing how we all understood that was a command, a uh, a call of God upon the church. Now we have a lot of pastors running around saying, "Well, that's not really what it means," you know. But it does. It means that it's it's a it's an injunction for the church. But the we also understand that, or you know, this is what we were thinking about last year. There's a there's a idea of laying down your lives for others. You know, John fifteen thirteen. So we were weighing out, should we temporarily close our church because we thought all these people are going to die and bodies were going to be stacked up like cordwood? And we weighed that out. Looking back now, I think we made the wrong decision because we have more information at our disposal. Mm-hmm. And if I knew what I knew now, I would not have locked down my church, period. I would have resisted from week one. But you know, when you find out something on a Thursday and you got to make a decision within eight hours and mm-hmm. it's unprecedented, it's difficult to do that. But from a purist perspective, that was a mistake. And I, and I regret making that decision. But if we were in a situation genuinely where we knew that by leaving our church open this week, I was going to, you know, kill half my people, then at least initially, I think I would, okay, let's just close her down quick and let's just see how we can rectify this and minister to people in the meanwhile, and then get it back up and running our ministries as soon as possible. That's not what we're into now. So now it's even less of a conundrum. Uh, we we can see we're coming up to a year this month and the narrative has gotten worse. The draconian measures are worse. The tyranny is worse. There's now a layering. The government's had all kinds of time where we've been sitting around chewing on our fingernails to create a whole system of tyranny and disrespect for the church. We have a Canadian pastor even in jail right now. So I would say last year we were in a situation where at least my perception was that it was a sort of one of those graded absolute situations where mm-hmm. I'm, I'm being pulled in two bad directions, close my church, kill people. You know, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm weighing two bad decisions. Which one is worse? Now I don't see it that way at all. I see this as an absolutist situation where the church must be open. Even if there were uh, deaths, the church must be open because the gospel of Jesus Christ alone rescues people from both, you know, the the, the penalty of physical death and ultimately spiritual death. Hmm. So I'm going to kind of go off, off the trail for a moment and just ask, what about the person who says, you know, uh, there's different information that we don't have access to. So, you know, like we said, you know, if we had different access to information or knew more last March than we know today, we would have done differently. There may be people out there still saying, hey, you know what, Doug Ford or my premier or leader has access to information I don't have. I'm going to trust that he has that access. He's making a good decision. Uh, to what degree are we responsible to do research? What if we say there's just so much information I can't process at all? Well, I think I could make a pretty uh, 
I think I could clarify that for people, make it real simple. Um, when you're in an, an absolute emergency and you are forced to make a decision on the spot, in the moment, you need to make a decision now and you have limited information, you're going to make a decision that might be right or wrong, regrettable or affirmable. So we give, our, we give one other bit of grace in that. That's not the situation now at all. We're not in an emergency. This is not an emergency. It's very clear. We're, we've been going at this for a whole year. That's not an emergency. And in our Canadian governmental structures, the onus is not on me to do any digging. I don't have to justify to the premier or prime minister the right for my church to meet or the right for me to live freely. The onus is 100% on them to provide us with clear, demonstrably justifiable reasons why lockdowns are absolutely necessary, why mask wearing is absolutely necessary, why social distancing at six feet is necessary. And they have not done that. It's, it's arbitrary. I mean, let's just take physical distancing, for example. It's three feet with WHO. It's six feet here. Where'd that come from? You've had a year. You can't even agree on whether it's three feet or six feet. You might say, what difference does it make? Well, one's double the other. So it makes a bit of a difference. We're in a situation now where I don't feel in any way, shape, or form, I don't feel any necessity to obey anything with regard to these protocols that health officials tell me because they have not provided me with the data, with the demonstrably justifiable reasons, and they've had a year to do it. How long, How much longer should we wait? Two years, three years, four years, five years, never? So I, I think it's a pretty simple ethical, it's not even an ethical conundrum. I think it's a pretty simple equation. Uh, we've been told to do something. We originally did it. The government's required to provide us with reason or rationale. They haven't done it. Ergo, we don't need to obey anymore and feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. Just this morning, I was watching a video by a man named David Redman, a former okay, uh, yeah. chief emergency guy out from Alberta, who was saying basically what they've done too is they've jettisoned all the pandemic planning that was in place. And mm -hmm. so just further to point out. He was like a military uh Yep. Colonel or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, definitely a good interview. You can check that out as well. We'll leave that in the notes. Um, so Aaron, getting back on track, to what degree do you think people are aware that their choices are actually moral in nature? Well, you know, I, I believe in the biblical notion that when Adam and Eve sinned, that it did greater damage to us than we're probably even aware. We really are depraved lot. And it affects our emotions, our minds, our bodies. If it, it affects all of us and our entire beings. And one of the problems we struggle with is not just willful rebellion, but also just flat out ignorance. Sometimes we're just not aware of what motivates us. The Bible talks about the heart as being deceitful of, of all things. Who can know it? All our good works are like filthy rags. So that's the good stuff. Imagine what the bad stuff's like. All our good works are like dirty cloths. Um, this is the, the Bible's portrayal of our goodness apart from God, apart from regeneration. So I don't think that all evil people are as aware as they should or could be of their propensity towards evil and how that affects the decisions they make. So we have people that are 
sort of on a scale of moral knowledge, this is the degree to which a person is conscious conscious of the moral decisions that they're making. Um, now, you need to cross-reference that with moral sensitivity, as we talked about earlier. And you need to kind of think about those categories. Is this person, you know, an amoralist, an immoralist, a moral relativist, or an absolutist? And by the way, if you're listening and these words are like new to you and you're like, oh, man, I can't remember these words, don't sweat it. Just try to grab hold of the concepts. You can use whatever language you want to express it, but just try to grab hold of the concepts. When we talk about people's moral knowledge, I would say there's sort of four grades we could give people. Um, you would score an A if you have an advanced understanding of right and wrong, which means you would need to be a knowledgeable, mature Christian, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, in the Word of God, being blessed by the illuminating work of God's spirit in your life to help you to understand truth and just studying to show yourself approved and then acting on it. So you would have, that's like, you know, you give a person, not a, not a per perfect grade, but we'll just call it an A. They have an advanced understanding of moral absolutes. A person that we could give a B to would be a, a person that has a solid understanding of right and wrong, maybe like a new Christian. They, They've got a lot of it down, but they're still, they just haven't had the time to to learn or to grow, you know, as much. They're they're like an apprentice. They they're solid. They're they're they love the Lord, but they're kind of growing in that. And they're more likely to make ethical mistakes than someone who's has an advanced knowledge. So I've had people over the years that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and you're you know, you're you're chit-chatting with them a year or two in, and you and you realize, oh, they're they're addicted to whatever, alcohol or smoking weed or something like that and you, and you challenge them and they're almost have like this blank look on their face that that's a problem <laughs> yeah it's a problem you know we're to be sober-minded so they're receptive to it though they may not have ever been taught that but they're receptive to it and then you have a person that you would maybe just give a c to i would say this is like your classical run-of-the-mill historical canadian that isn't regenerate isn't a Christian necessarily, but they have a general knowledge of right and wrong. So I'm thinking of some, you know, older relatives I have, extended family members who would agree with me on many points of, you know, this is right and this is wrong. It's it's wrong to abort children. It's it's wrong to steal. It's wrong to, you know, cheat on your husband or wife. It's it's wrong. But they they would they would have a general knowledge of it, but not like necessarily a convictional knowledge. And they're they would be at times inconsistent in their application of it. Um, by the way, I think I think I'm seeing that worldview in a lot of our premiers. So I, I think many of our premiers in Canada are of that generation where they kind of they they know right from wrong, but they they're not necessarily consistent in it. And it's, it's more, they're almost considered in, 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 um, by the broader public generation in particular, it's a little bit of a dinosaur. You know, they kind of have the old ways about them. I would give a person a D who's maybe never explicitly been taught right and wrong. And that would be the younger generation. Now he's, he's actually a year older than me, but I would say our prime minister would fall into that category in that he doesn't seem to have any, uh, sense of historic Christian morality and the decisions that he makes. That's I don't want to be super judgmental, but I think that 
from a mile away, that's what it looks like. He he kind of buys into all the the cliche. He he's a classic example of someone who calls right wrong and wrong right. So if you if you're intolerant toward evil, if you're intolerant toward abortion, well, you're a bad person because you don't you're not into um, you know freedom of decision, freedom of uh, choice. Um, he he kowtows to groups that are you know crying out against uh, you know uh, maybe abuse that they've taken and, and rightly so different people groups have taken abuse but he tends to jump on those cultural bandwagons when in reality there might be a lack of responsibility being taken by some of these people but he would never call them out on it he would just you know wave his finger at people who um you know by by, by virtue of their could be their upbringing or just good decision making have advantaged themselves so uh, and by the way, let me just talk about that for a second. A lot of people have this idea that if you're poor and you don't have a lot, you're a victim. And if you're wealthy and you're well-adjusted, you're a victimizer. That's garbage. It's true in a small number of cases. But this is not a biblical notion. This is a false morality. The Bible is very clear. If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. So some people are poor and impoverished because they won't work, for example. And why are we not telling people this? We're not telling. We're not saying that to people to make them feel bad. We're saying them to to call them to a meaningful life, to use their lives productively. If you're listening in and you're like, "Man, my you know my life's terrible. I I, I never have enough money," and you're not working. Okay, and you don't want to work or you're you're not working enough and you could or should be working more. The problem is not the guy down the street that owns his own business and has three cars in the driveway. The problem is you. And while some rich people can take advantage of other people, the general rule in life is if you're rich and wealthy, it's because you've worked really hard. So we live in a free and democratic society, capitalistic society. And generally speaking, your stature in life is connected with how hard you've worked or not worked. By the way, I can say that because at different junctures of my life, I've lived um, as upper middle class, as middle class, and as impoverished. Because we, we went through a lot of different things growing up and kind of some, some divorce and family squabbles. So I know what it's like to literally not have food in the cupboard. I, I personally know what that's like. I personally know the embarrassment of that, the stigma of that. But I also know that um, if I just let myself, you know, think of myself as a victim and not take responsibility for my decisions and actions, I wouldn't move forward. So that's a little bit of a, a sidebar, but I use that in this in the cultural narrative coming from the PMO's office. What you're generally hearing is if you are well to do, you're bad. And if you're poor, you're a victim. That is a generalization that is inappropriate and unhelpful in culture and will not actually advance an agenda. But you're going to you're going to wind uh, an agenda of true justice and righteousness, but you will land there if you do not have a bible that presents you with a redemptive view of work, you know, work 6 days, you're off the 7th, not work 5 and you're off 2, not work 3 and you're off 4. The biblical creational mandate is you work 6 and you're off on a sabbath. That's the biblical creational model. You run with that model year after year after year, barring war, plague, or extraordinary circumstances. 
you will advance yourself. You live off the system. You demand universal income. You demand other people to provide for your health care. You demand other people to pay for your kids' way through school and on and on and on. You will not get ahead. And you can yell and you can scream and you can tweet and you can hashtag and you can lobby and you can vote for a different person that's going to you know, make your life easier, supposedly. At the end of the day, it will not work. So we have, uh, in that example I've given, uh, th- this, this uh, proof that when you don't have moral absolutes to govern your economy, your notion of justice, your work ethic, these kinds of things, things fall apart. So I, I think in you know, response to your question, um, when you're interacting with people, s- deep down, because we're made in the image and likeness of God, we have a basic understanding of right and wrong, but it can be marred by our worldview, our upbringing, the culture that we're in. And you need to kind of take that into consideration when you're interacting with people. And it's easier to tell a person who knows right from wrong when they do wrong, hey, you're doing wrong. They're like, okay, you're right. But some people don't even believe in right and wrong or not. They don't have any sort of absolutist view of right and wrong. And so it's a longer conversation. You're going to expect more inconsistency there. Yeah. That's good proverbial wisdom about work and work ethic and uh, the results of that. Now, I think you've made the case very, very well that we live in a morally charged world morals bleed into everything we do really uh there may be some immoral things or some amoral or whatever something where they're morally neutral uh, but most are morally charged we would say especially relationally so given the, the the things we're facing current rolling lockdowns church restrictions an emphasis on our health what are the big moral issues you think christians should study should discuss and should really concern themselves with right now I think we need to set aside this notion that the church service is the only moral thing we do during the week. The world is morally charged. We need to understand that. Politics is not morally neutral. So we have to engage in the political processes. doesn't mean we need to get our shorts in a knot because they're choosing to put a new telephone poles down the side of a road or pave a gravel road. Like Those are you know, issues I don't have a lot of time to weigh in on. But so much of politics today is morally charged. Who is going to rule us? Who's going to govern us? How are they going to rule or govern us? That's a moral question. And Christians need to study that, understand the systems, and speak in to political uh, structures. Running for office is a good place to start. I, I really hope that in the next election cycle, we have just an absolute boatload of informed Christians running for, you know, municipal, provincial, and federal uh, office. That would be a great thing to come out of this lockdown. We need to think about how economics are impacted by moral decisions. Um, Who's going to pay for this? Um, Who's going to get left behind in the dust? Uh, Is it moral to allow for mega corporations during lockdowns to have 100% of the share uh, of making money and to give zero opportunity to small business owners to make money. They're actually losing money because they still have to pay their rent, their mortgage, Mm -hmm. their utilities, these kinds of their insurances. Is that moral? It's not moral. It's immoral. 
it's wrong. Christians need to speak out against that. That's not tolerable. One of the, the biggest tragedies, I, th- I think, in, in the Canadian church during this is not only the silence of pastors, and we're talking probably 95% of them out there, maybe more, that might be generous, who've provided almost no direction to their congregations as to how to process these lockdowns, but have been absolutely silent in the midst of this absolute injustice of allowing you know the Walmarts and Costcos to have 100% of the business and all these small businesses to be closed 100% of the time. It's just unbelievably wrong. And why more leaders aren't speaking out against that just boggles my mind. Um, medicine, how far do you go to save lives? Okay, who doesn't want to save lives? If you want me, one person, to stay home and save a life for a day, two days, a week, okay, I'll do it. But how far do you go? There's a You have to consider the moral fallout of your decisions. You want us to stay home five out of the last 11 months to save lives, but then we're looking around realizing there's a whole bunch of lives that are actually being destroyed. There's a whole bunch of collateral damage. We had uh, so many people uh, come into our church this past week. They're just struggling with all sorts of issues. And I'm talking about like deep, long-term issues tied to this lockdown stuff. That's a moral question Mm -hmm. we need to have. Science, what are the limitations of science? Um, I don't I don't want to poo-poo science because as I understand it, science is simply humanity's attempt to understand and study creation, order, structure, the way things are in God's created world. How can that not be a good thing properly understood? But science has become a god. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's just admit it. Science has become a god and an idol. It's considered the highest form of knowledge. It's superseded divine revelation. People think that's normal. That's abnormal. Historic universities always elevated divine revelation above the physical sciences. The first doctorates issued in the world were in the areas of divinity, theology, not in the social or, uh, physical sciences. But now as soon as you hear the word doctor, you think, oh, uh, some sort of a master of the physical sciences. Historically, that was a word for men who studied what we would call theology or divinity. So we live in a world that has uh, elevated science. And the funny thing is science keeps changing, right? It it changes all the time. You don't even be, have to be that old to understand that. And, there, and it, it will continue to change because science is simply – us studying and restudying and trying to figure out, you know, how things work in the world. And the more information we get, the more we we change our mind on things. So, what are the uh, you know limitations of science? How much should I trust it? The same, the same scientists that advise our government on a lot of these lockdowns are also pro-abortion, pro-euthanasia. They'll deny the science if someone's standing in their office and demands a sex change surgery. They'll just put it aside for political purposes. So, you know, we understand why those things are taking place, but let's not let's not be so foolish as to assume that oh, if you're a scientist, you're absolutely you know intellectually objective, you know everything, and you're totally to be trusted. Come on, people! Science is littered with moral decision making, with issue ideologies and worldviews that are right and wrong. Sociology, uh, how we interact with one another, how we address injustices. 
How about this question? What is justice? You know, all this talk in society of social justice. Okay, let's have that conversation. But let's start with a basic question. What is justice? Ask a, a social justice warrior what that question. They'll immediately go to the issues. They don't have a basis for justice. We do because we have the word of God, which is our uh, guidebook to what's right and wrong. It reveals to us what's right and wrong. Uh, education, who's teaching our children? Why? What are they teaching our children? So what, what I'm um, you know, thinking about here is that all these categories of life that we historically have sort of thought of as morally neutral, politics, economics, um, medicine, science, sociology, education, every single one of these disciplines and categories of life is influenced big time by moral and ethical decisions. And as Christians, fortunately, we have a, uh, an unchanging moral, ethical standard. And it's it comes to us from God through the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. And if we study them, we show ourselves approved and we show ourselves conf- competent to respond to the challenges of life and not just respond like defensively, but also to go into these areas of life in our careers and vocations and make a difference so that God's kingdom rule might be extended, you know, into, into law, politics and, and so forth. So uh, we have a, um, a huge redemptive historical sociological um, advantage uh, as Christians, because we have access to God's moral standards and absolutes, and we can bring them to bear on these relevant parts of life and and make a big difference. Great. This has been a very helpful conversation. I'm sure many people will be blessed by it. And so we just want to thank each one of you for listening to another episode of the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Please subscribe on our platforms, share it, and if you can, rate it as well, and that would be a blessing. And we'll see you here back next week. 